2: and 365-day returns.
3: The Michael
4: Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
0: Wednesday morning, uh, the 1st of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Petrol now costs over €2 a litre. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Eurostats' harmonised index of consumer prices puts the rate of inflation in Ireland at 8.2% now. Prices are going to go up even further. This is according to the Taoiseach. Yesterday, Micheál Martin said he doesn't have the specifics of how much prices will rise by, but we can expect higher energy prices for the foreseeable future.
3: I'm very glad that the leaders were able to agree in principle um, on the six uh, sanctions package. Um, This is very important. Thanks to this, um, Council should now be able to finalize a ban on almost 90% of all Russian oil imports by the
5: end of
0: the year. That's uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking yesterday. Let's speak now to the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne of Fianna Fáil TD for me. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, this decision reached at uh, the European Council Summit uh, is bittersweet, is it not?
6: Well, I wouldn't say that.
2: I mean, I think it's essential that we do it. I mean, we can't continue to let Russia sell us. Uh, oil in particular, which is a major product we have, and, and, and other services that they give through banks and that, uh, while they're doing what they're doing to Ukraine and threatening other places as well. So, it has to be done. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt, I mean, this war uh, is causing a hit to fuel prices, and then that goes into fertiliser prices and into food prices. Uh, and that's, quite frankly, this war is going to cause a famine, probably in large parts of Africa, and uh, perhaps the Middle East as well this year. So, it's outrageous what's happening, and the European Union has to respond. We don't have weapons of war as such to to start fighting Putin and causing World War III uh, we have to implement these sanctions. Um, I think it's our moral legal responsibility to do that and then to try to move away as quickly as possible and we're doing that um, from dependence on Russian oil and gas um, and to move as quickly as possible then into renewables which isn't going to happen today or tomorrow but it could happen much more quickly than we think.
0: Okay, how much more quickly?
2: Well, I mean one of the things that's not really been noted on the on the council this the summit conclusions yesterday is that they're going to be looking at the fast tracking of permissions, particularly for offshore wind. Um and things like that just are taking a long time. And clearly we have to get with the programme of that first of all for the climate mm. but also that we can reduce the dependence on Russia. And quite frankly it's a huge opportunity for Ireland if we can if we can get offshore wind going. And I, I noticed there was one planning permission given this week. Um almost everybody's in favour of it. Uh, it does mean, then, uh, that not only do we reduce our dependence, but this particular country, which has a lot of wind mm. around the seas, um, will be able to produce some of that energy um, and, you know, okay. improve our economy yeah. and improve, improve our climate as well.
0: Okay. Fast-tracking means what, though?
2: Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's agreed in principle now by the by the leaders. The European Commission will have to implement that and come up with Proposals of that so we look forward to that but that's not just decided yet
0: but we have the proposals by the end of the year let alone oh the, I, think,
2: I think sooner than that sooner than that I mean the commission will have to work urgently on this because you know we're going to get rid of the, the vast bulk of Russian oil by the end of the year that's already happening like what's actually happening is, is that countries are scouring the world now looking for other sources mm. of oil because they can't just turn to wind like even in the
0: next six months. Well, all, Ro- all Russian oil is banned from being imported into all of Europe bar three countries, isn't that right?
2: Well, effectively, I mean... Yeah, by the, by
0: the end of this year. So when are the alternatives going to be in place, I suppose, in, in terms of that time frame? Uh, we're looking at a huge gap between the alternatives being available and the oil drying up, aren't we? Yeah,
2: I mean, look, Russian oil drying up for us, is going to cause a problem, but it's not the only source of oil. Ireland doesn't take oil from Russia, but we do take it from the world market, obviously, which other countries now would be, have, have to feed into. Mm. It is possible that Russian oil could find another home. Um, China or other countries, and if they want to do that, that's their business. We have to stand up for democracy. So that then means that there will be maybe more oil for the rest of us. So it's not quite as simple as turning off the tap to the entire world that oil may get sold elsewhere, but there's no sanctions. And mm. the impact may not be quite as bad as we fear although it obviously will be bad in the short term there's no yeah. question about that yeah. um, uh, the, the entire market is very very complex but what's been happening for the last few weeks is like I mean, people are trying to literally build pipelines very quickly for oil particularly for natural gas uh, reconnect the old pipelines that are going to be used that can, can avoid or bypass Russia that work's been ongoing for the last while individual countries are doing it but also it's starting to be done now at the EU level as well there's yeah. a model there that's really only getting going it's along the lines of the vaccine program can we, can we buy these things together and um, so that's all that's all been happening we we haven't had to do that particularly in terms of natural gas because we have our own gas supply and we take gas from britain as well and uh, we're interconnection
0: yeah but you've uh, the same problem with gas uh, uh, the netherlands uh, were refused russian gas because they wouldn't pay rubles it's not the first time that it's happened we saw it happen in Swin- sweden and, and finland uh, and if Russian gas stops coming and if Russian oil st- stops coming uh, regardless of any other sources, the prices are going to go up, aren't they?
2: And they have gone up and this war has caused um, you a know, very significant increase in prices. That was happening before it um, because of the uncertainty with mass and soldiers there. So, so yeah, that's happening. So it's urgent that we find other supplies. That work's been ongoing and it's urgent then that we go as quickly as possible into renewables. Again, that's not for today or tomorrow but the work is going on today and tomorrow uh, to make sure that that can happen as quickly as possible Mm. That presents a big opportunity for this country
0: So what kind of a a gap are we talking about between the Russian oil drying up and the alternatives being in place is it at least 12 months?
2: No I wouldn't say that at all I mean I I, I can't see a situation where we're going to allow Europe to dry up of oil um, or diesel That's, that's not going to happen Um, there are alternative supplies and there's work going on to get those alternative supplies. And as I say, what could happen now is that some of the Russian oil that's coming to Europe could go to other countries Mm. But they're not, they're not I mean, I the meant alternative.
0: I meant alternative forms of energy. I oh, take re- it, I, I take it, we'll have the alternative sources uh, immediately, but the prices of those mm-hmm. will skyrocket. Uh, and uh, until we have alternative sources of energy, those prices won't come down, they'll just continue to go up, won't they?
2: Yeah, and we're, we're, we're looking as well. Again, that there's work we've done at the EU level as well to see. I mean, at the moment, the price of electricity is tied into the price of natural gas. It is actually a good technical reason for that. It actually encourages more renewables, which is actually good in the long run. But at the moment, it's actually helping to keep the electricity price high. Um, so people are looking to see how, how can that system be changed. And quite frankly, a system might fully uh, understand this. It's very, very technical. Um, but they're looking to see, can that be done? Now, what the system does at the moment is it definitely doesn't um, um, make us do well on, on renewables. So actually, Ireland's not doing too bad uh, on renewables for electricity. But clearly, we've a long way to go on transport. Okay, but if you look at
0: the price of petrol this morning, or home heating oil, which has doubled uh, in the last number of months, so people will be asking themselves, will they be able to turn on the heat next winter or will the price have doubled come next February? Uh,
2: Look, they will be able to turn on the heat and governments uh, have responded to this already. Um, We want to respond in a full way by the budget. We look on our side at the moment in the sense that we're coming to summer and what we're doing over the summer now, at national level and at European level, is to make sure that we have the right policies in place uh, at the time of the winter. So we've already put huge support into uh, consumers and into electricity bills, and some people are still you know, feeling the benefit of that, quite frankly. It's more than a lot more than almost every other country has given. We've done, and we will do more, but we're going to do it at the time of the budget, and it'll be done. I've no doubt there'll be direct support to people, there'll be... Um, rate cuts or whatever. We've done all, we've done all that I and mean, know that we'll continue mm. to do that in the autumn. But we have to work at a, at a bigger way, at a higher level as well because it all comes down to supply.
0: Yeah, but when the Taoiseach starts making statements about having to be honest with people and there's tough times coming down the line it's reminiscent of uh, Charlie Hawhey telling us we have to tighten our belts, isn't it?
2: Ah uh, no, I don't think I don't think that's it. I mean, look, no, he's saying that on the way, not at all, he's saying that on the way into a meeting where we're actually working to get solutions to all of it uh, for people. Rather than, saying, rather than saying something like you'd have to be embarrassed, that's, that's not what he's saying at all. Uh, what he's saying is, this is a problem. It's a problem because of the war. It's a problem because of the, the, the realities of climate change. We're here today at the European Summit to try to solve that problem. But also, we're working really hard to make sure we can get renewables into the field as well to solve that problem. We're also working as well, I mean, what, what the carbon tax at the moment is paying for is uh, insulation of in people's houses we've a lot of work to do on that and that's another way of reducing people's heating bills as well and we're starting off with, um, with people who are on fuel allowance, et cetera. So there's a lot of work going on and we really need to accelerate that work because that's another aspect because people can get their house upgraded to whatever the, the rate is. I mean, the, the heating, heating bills become less of an issue because they don't have to heat their house as much. So, so there's a lot of factors into this. It's very easy to say, like if I said today we're going to give 200 a house, which we've already given more than to, to some to some households, you know, the opposition is going to say, oh no, we'll give 300. But actually, financial support is definitely part of it. Mm. But it's also about warming up houses. It's also getting different supplies. It's also about the move to renewables in okay. a quicker time
0: frame. So you have between now uh, and uh, October to come up with the formula for putting money into people's pockets. Will uh, that intervention be targeted?
2: Well, I mean, it's a, what we've done so far, I mean, it's been, it's been You've targeted. You've given it to
0: everybody. So it's... Well,
2: no, we have, but we've also given more to those in fuel than um, so so, so we have given it to everybody, and I think everybody deserves a break, but we have given more to people at
0: lens. that's fine. That was in the and last budget, yeah. In the, in the, well, no, in the last, in the... There was the bonus, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there was the, mm. uh,
2: well, let's not call it a bonus, mm. but it's, it's, it's a help to people. Um, so the lens is a really good way of doing mm. it, because you are targeting people there who need it most. Um, so over the summer we're going to be working on this, it's not just social welfare, it's about wages as well because inflation mm-hmm. is hitting every, not just heating, it's hitting food as well. It's about tax, uh, it's about making sure the economy is uh, able to withstand this. It's about householders as well because of interest rates going up, that's going to be a major focus I think over the summer. People um, have mortgages, the first rise in interest rates is likely now um, since since 2008 or 2009. Um, so the we want to do this in a proper approach, that it can't just be week by week. Uh, we've already given big support. We're in the summer now. The heating bills are not just as high, obviously, during the summer as they are in the winter. Uh, and we want to be ready for that winter at Irish and European level with the best possible support to give to people. And we've already shown that we're giving among the best support, certainly in the European Union. And we want to do more. And We want to do it properly. And We want to, we want to make sure that in the next few years... Ireland is ready not just to take advantage of renewable energies to reduce our heating bills but also to be a major part of our economy um, in terms of exporting it into Europe.
0: Okay, well, the summit continues and uh, you're with uh, the Taoiseach... Well, no, no, sorry, I finished, yes. Oh, sorry. I beg your pardon, but uh, you've been with your uh, party yeah. leader, the Taoiseach, in Brussels uh, over the last couple of days. Meanwhile, uh, the Tarnashti, the leader of Fidegale, uh, is in Rotterdam for the EPP uh, Congress that's been taking place there, uh, which Fine Gael is a member of uh, on a European level. Uh, I'm not sure if you have seen it, Minister, but uh, Leo Radker has been telling members uh, of his European grouping uh, that he, he could win a, a referendum on joining NATO, which really would bring about a, an end to Irish neutrality. Have you any thoughts on that?
2: I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon. Um, uh, he, he may have his own views on that. Um, the last European referendum we had was when uh and Labour were in government, and it had to be led by Michal Martin from opposition at the time uh, to make sure it was successful to, to ensure that our, our economy could recover from the crisis. So um, it, that would be, I haven't even thought of that, but that would be a very difficult referendum, and I'm not sure uh, why we would need to do that at the moment. It's not causing us any problems at the moment. We have a lot of work to do to upgrade our own defence forces to do the work of protecting the state, but also to do the work that they do uh, of peacekeeping. The Taoiseach was in Lebanon at the weekend as well, before the European Summit. and You know, I know everybody in this country is proud of um, all of the people that have served in the Lebanon from a peacekeeping country. And indeed, one of the things that struck uh, the people who were on that delegation to Lebanon was that in some cases, you had the third generation of a family who were serving over there in Lebanon. Uh, uh, in the Irish Army under under UN auspices and we're very proud of that and I think that's where I think we need to focus our energies at this particular time mm. um, and, and, and to six, improve six, the
0: support uh, we give uh, And it would be unpopular as things stand 64% of uh, the population according to the last poll on this in the Irish Times were uh, opposed to uh, giving up neutrality or, or neutral position uh, and of Fall was uh, opposed joining NATO would it?
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay.
0: Minister, thank you very much indeed I for mean, joining no. us on the programme this morning. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, Fianna TD for Mid-East.
7: Michael, Michael
0: Reid on, on LMFM. Well, we've legally binding carbon budgets uh, to reduce emissions by 51% uh, by 2030. we're going to do that is another day's work. And according to the EPA, it looks as though uh, there's some serious challenges ahead for all of us, but particularly for those in agriculture. Tim Cullinan is uh, the president of the Irish Farmers Association. A very good morning to you, Tim Cullinan, and thank you indeed for joining joining us. The EPA uh, would like to know how you're going to manage to cut uh, methane by 30%.
6: Yeah. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Absolutely. And I was listening to Laura Burke earlier on this morning, and um, look, I think, and what Laura was saying this morning is quite similar to what we're saying ourselves. What we're looking at here is overall emissions, and um, we are on the road to doing that. Michael, you know, a lot of work as we speak is taking place. You know, particularly around the science is evolving it's evolving now at um, a faster rate than before and what I mean by that is you know, a number of trials already have been conducted and some bovines can produce bovines that are on grass which is our main system here in Ireland can produce up to 30% less meat then. so you know, we need that science to evolve You so know, we need peer, peer reviews around that and say that is happening and I on the other side measures that farmers already have implemented, you know, the initiatives around protected mm-hmm. urea um, and clover in the sward and um, multi-species grasses. All of that is taking place at the moment. And uh, I suppose the other thing I think we need to be conscious of here this morning is to know where the world is at now. Like when this act went through the, the climate action act went through the door last June the world was in a complete different place than it is today and I'm referring here to the war in the ukraine mm. when you take a country like ukraine out of the system uh you could call it one one of the main break, bread basket countries for the world and uh we had the eu commissioner actually addressing our national council in the farm centre on Munda. And he was very clear and explicit. What's crucially important, obviously, at the moment is food security. So we have one humanitarian crisis that we're seeing unfolding night after night on our television screens. And you no, know, and he actually complimented us in Ireland that we are able to feed anything between 30 to 40 million people at the moment. And that is going to be required but
0: it's aside the point. in the coming years.
6: It, it, well, well, it's not beside the point, because, I mean, Michael, I, I understand clearly our obligations around climate, but I think we also... But
0: the a EPA doesn't now. understand what you're going to do about it, uh, and... <laughs>
6: to do I've outlined already what we're doing we're working on the science farmers already
0: that's yeah that, no that, and that's well farmers. and good you're talking the talk you've been asked by the EPA directly this morning to walk the walk uh, it's no good telling us that you're working on how to do it what they want is a, a plan clearly spelled out and that you'll be able to tell us how it will be achieved yeah
6: yeah. I, I am telling you how it will be achieved what I'm saying is it has been clearly demonstrated by our own, the, the state research body, TRAGUS, and in conjunction with ICBF, that there is bovines out there that is producing up to 30% less methane, yeah. so we have to genotype our animals, get more animals that is doing similar to that. and that's Well, you it. have to
0: get all of them, that's don't you? You, do you. Them. you have to get yeah, all of yeah, them
6: yeah, to do it. Well, but Michael, we need time to do this.
0: Yes, yeah, but what? That, that's, that's the question. Uh, and, uh, yeah,
6: but yeah, well, I'm answer, the, the answer I'm giving you...
0: No, not me. The uh, question uh, the uh, EPA uh, is asking yeah. of agriculture is... Uh, How much time do you need to do it? When will it be done? Because emissions in agriculture are going to increase by 1.9% between now and 2030. Uh, And if you want to reach the 22% target uh, reduction for agriculture, you have to reduce methane overall, not just in some trials, by 30%. Yeah, and you're right,
6: by reducing methane overall that we are looking at all of the measures that will achieve a twenty two we absolutely we're agreeing we're working on and by the way in Food Vision twenty thirty that that Laura Burke signed up to the same as I did on behalf of, of our members, it was twenty percent. But look, we're dealing with the twenty two percent and as I said to you, the 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 science is critical in this. The other area where there's a lot evolving is around feed additives that, that can be fed to bovines that will reduce the overall emissions as well. So I don't accept that we are not working on this. An awful lot of work, as I say, is being done. Mm. Farmers are...
0: Using I, I, but I, I, see, I don't think and, the and EPA I say is saying... saying that, I, don't, well. I don't think the and EPA... I'm, I don't think... And, and, and the EPA, I'm sure will correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they're, they are saying you're not working on it. Uh, what they want to know is... How is that work going, and when, when is it going to be implemented so that it's just normal for farming practice uh, to use this new way of farming?
6: Yeah, and a number of the measures, as I say, has been implemented to date. So, for, you know, we are it's not that just farmers are talking about doing this. Farmers are using protected urea, are using less or low emission slurry spreading which means ammonia doesn't get up into the atmosphere it goes right into the mm-hmm. root of the plant and is actually saving on inorganic fertilizer these things michael are happening as we speak at the moment and i suppose if you on, look at on the what scale though
0: uh, on what scale uh, and when and when will it be 100 percent of the herd
6: but look i can't say this morning when it will be 100 percent of the herd but what i'm saying to you is farmers have taken on these initiatives mm. the science is evolving and obviously it's going to okay. take time like, we we'll have okay. to get to 2025 for
0: uh, it and I'm and sorry for cutting across, across you Tim because I mean you are making very valid points but I do think that they are beside the point to some extent because I think the EPA wants to know when can you tell us it, it will be 100% if you can't say that today when will you be able to say it
6: well, well, what I'm saying is we're, we're working towards we have to get there by 2030 and there's two jumps here we have where we're going to be in 2025 2026 and where we'll be in 2020 and if we continue implementing more of what we're doing we are doing this already and uh, obviously we always can do more and the other point i want to make here though as well michael which is important like if we go back to this program for government it was very clear and explicit in that program for government around the distinct Characteristics of biogenic methane, and if we look at our colleagues over in New Zealand, and I spoke to them the other day, they're working on what's called a GWT GWP star, which is the methane is separated out, and they're striving for a ten percent reduction in methane from cows by 2030. And uh, where we, you know, it's 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 completely different to what we're doing here. We're working on GWP 100. So that is something that. Uh, was stated in the programme for government and it's something that hasn't been lived up to on the other side. But parting that aside, as I say, all of the measures that has been agreed between between Chagas and ourselves as farmers are being implemented at the moment. The science is continuing to evolve and that is how we're going to get there. But I think what's very important here is we're looking at the overall reduction of emissions and it was mentioned as well this morning, so where are we with the forestry? Like We all know we need to plant more forestry Mm -hmm. to be able to take more carbon out of the atmosphere. And it's not our fault that we're only planting 2,000 hectares per year. There's a target to plant 8,000 per year. And we, as a farm organisation, have been lobbying for that, for the freeing up of the licences, in particular, for farmers to be able to plant forestry if they so wish.
0: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us for the programme. Thank you. That's uh, Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association.
7: Michael, Michael
0: Reid on, on LMFM. FM. Now, to a uh, true story, uh, the names of uh, the victims in uh, the story will not be published in order to protect the innocent. Uh, and I kid you not. Uh, let's go to Rurio Murakushin, Faint TD for loud and East Mead because this is a very sensitive story uh, and you're going to uh, tell us a, a little bit about it. Uh, I think Uh, everybody uh, listening to us uh, this morning in this part of the world would be very fearful of the idea of a petrol bomb coming in through their window uh, and would view it as attempted murder because they know that it could burn the house down and the house next door and the house on the other side uh, for that matter uh, if uh, that was uh, the case. Uh, But what about people living next door to a house that has gone up in flames? Uh, Obviously the people who were living there had to be moved out and then had to be reaccommodated. But when that house was done up again, they were moved back into that house, only for the house to be burnt down again. Not only is uh, this a very uh, sensitive issue, it's one that's very dangerous and one that people have, have been left in a situation where they're very afraid, but they've also been living under terrible conditions. Tell us a little bit more about this story, if you would, Well. I-
8: Thank you for having me on, Michael. Uh, the, the difficulty with this story is people are going to think this is three, four, five, six other stories in Dundalk. particularly at the minute. There have been a number of uh, house burnings, you know, over the last period. And... Um, Some of them have been council houses, some of them haven't been, some of them are long-term lets that are still technically, um, you know, council tenants, but we're talking about a number of cases um, where people obviously have been dealing with probably a considerable amount of What you could only talk uh, consider uh, probably severe antisocial behaviour that would have a huge impact in relation to the street and you and the wider community. And you've had a number of issues where people have been put in danger in the sense that um, houses have been attacked. Now, many of these situations, many of these situations are, um, you know, the people who are obviously living in the house. Um, have been, you know, victims of, of other attacks. Now, this can be the follow-on from, you know, some of the, let's say, dysfunctionality that you're dealing with. You know, there are issues, obviously, we've spoken many times before of issues that relate to to drug debt intimidation and, and all the rest of it. But the problem is the wider community, in particular anybody else that is, you know, Living beside them, even in some cases physically connected to them, has to live with all this chaos and danger, and obviously is living um, with, uh, you know, under constant worry and and pressure, and that has a, that has a severe impact. There will also be a feeling of unfairness in the sense. Which, which is understandable. Like we've we spoken uh, again many times before about the issues. I've spoken to the council in relation to it of the need for preventative maintenance to get works done in, in council houses. And mm. um, I, I know that the, I know that the council are trying to put government, as I'm trying to add my voice to in relation to a preventative maintenance scheme. You know that would need to, some element of government financing. While there may be needs for looking at some uh, opportunities as well within the council and obviously using. The retrofitting scheme and all the rest of it, but the fact is, then some, you know, people see that a house gets burnt, and it's for as it should be on the basis mm. of insurance and everybody doing their due diligence. It's 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 then put together exactly as should be and in pristine condition, you know. Whereas many people could be waiting on the fact that they haven't been able to get, get that maintenance. Right, look, and I well, well the house that was
0: burnt down is probably in pristine condition when. Uh, the people that were the target of the petrol bomber moved back into it, but the house next door isn't in pristine condition because if the house next door to you burns down, you're going to uh, see a lot of damage in your own house, smoke damage uh, and other things for that matter.
8: Yeah, now if we're talking about the specifics, obviously, of, of, of the particular case that we're both aware of, um, the, the one thing is that the loss assessor was out and, and made an assessment, be that right or wrong, um, around whatever damage was done to the secondary house, um, but the fact is the council have done a follow-up. Uh, some of it down to you know your own communication and my own communication with them, and also that of of the tenants. And I believe that that's probably moving towards um, uh, that's moving towards mm-hmm. a situation where hopefully the tenant will be reasonably satisfied. But again, it's all the other issues that the tenant has to deal with alongside that mm. and and um,
0: and the, problems, the problems that return with the tenants when they're uh, rehousing the house that was burnt down and it's burnt down uh, again i was talking to a man uh, who told me they were living beside uh, someone uh, and their house was burned down and there were drug dealers uh, and this man was telling me that the neighbors were dealing drugs and that's why their house was burnt down uh, and that they were buying scrap cars for 50 euro and, and leaving them parked outside of the house uh, and that's where they were stashing their drugs
8: Right. It depends what case we are talking about. Like, in Mm. fairness, a considerable amount of houses that we've seen burnt in the last while have been in relation to drug debts or drug-related, you know, Mm. feud situations for the want of a better term. Um, And and the fact is, um, they they are slightly different situations because sometimes what people call a drug dealer isn't necessarily a drug dealer. What we can also have, which can have a huge impact if you're living beside it, is where people are utterly chaotic, where you have nothing but parties all the time where you have probably a considerable amount of drugs taken, whether they're sold or not on, on that property is beside the point. But yeah, you have a considerable amount of that going on. In some cases, that can nearly be worse than living beside a full-scale drug enterprise. Mm. But, but, but let's be clear, I can also con- uh, have an- another couple of houses that are in my head where they have been burnt down for various reasons. And I am very afraid that the people who um, have those houses, who have a right to be housed, and unfortunately, um, be it good, bad or indifference, the council are on the hook for housing them but I know that if they return to the exact same addresses that some of the in these cases these people are vulnerable they yeah. have their own difficulties and that's not the to stand over the stuff that they allow to happen yeah. but they will be for the want of a better term useful idiots for serious criminals for serious drug dealers who will use their houses to literally sell drugs out of and will definitely and they will be party houses, and they will have mm. all the associated anti-social with it. And, and their, na- and, and
0: their neighbours could be burnt down with them. I think that's a, a, an important point as well, isn't it?
8: Look, I have said it that many things before. Yeah. Aren't we very glad that nobody was serious hurt, seriously hurt? Aren't we very glad that nobody was killed? And aren't we very glad that it didn't that the whole street didn't go up. That's mm-hmm. what we've been talking about in relation to many of these situations. And let's be clear, because people would come to me, and I don't like doing it, sometimes I end up being almost an apologist for the council, mm-hmm. but what I will say is, the council do not have the wherewithal to deal with the estate management factors that you need at this point in time. And we really need, like we, we all talk about multi-agency responses, but in, in fairness, you, when you're considering some of the more dysfunctional families in london like on, on some level there's been a failure of the state you know we, we've mm. known people have grown up in absolutely dreadful situations and that there has been insufficient supports that people have been left at the periphery of society mm. the kids have grown up in, in and as i say what can only be described as absolutely dreadful circumstances and that we failed as a state to put in those early interventions <laughs> whereby we could have helped families and we could have helped some of these individuals um, and we could have possibly avoided some Okay, of but we, also we are we where
0: we are, as work. the phrase goes, Rory, and yes. I'm, just, I'm running short on time. We didn't intervene, so here we are. Uh, you have these problems. Are you saying that the council has no option, that it has to house people, otherwise uh, it'll fail them further? Uh, I see people saying, uh, would they not liaise with the Gardaí, but even if the Gardaí are giving the council yes. this sort of information, do they have to house them, rehouse them, or move them back into a house after the house has been burnt down? Well,
8: see, There's varying things. See, if we're talking about major criminal action, it only matters if the guards actually have done somebody. And if you're talking about drug dealing, they really have to have done them, literally selling drugs close in major numbers, probably close to the house or nearly in, in, in the particular property. Then they can look at, at eviction. They don't have the powers that I would like them to have, but beyond that... They, there is a serious failing in relation to estate management look we do not and then they do not have the ability to call on the resources you need if it's addiction services if it is you know what i mean the guards don't have sufficient mm. resources if it's mental health supports if it's all those other things what i'm saying is we have a serious body of work to do and we are absolutely failing communities i don't think it's okay that people are put back into circumstances mm. whereby the wider community has been put under pressure. I think, yeah, that mm. is a failing.
0: And what about the innocents? Just, just briefly, what about well, the innocents? What, what what can they do other than ask to be rehoused? And if they do, somebody else moves in where they were, and then they're in the same situation, and that goes on forever and a no, day.
8: I, mm. I I am saying completely, it's the innocents who are being, you know, failed absolutely in this case. I do not think it's okay. See in Finglas, there's there's uh, there's a, there's a there's a service, Aylward Green, where you talk about the most dysfunctional of families or whatever that are incapable of living in here, a regular community. And they are put into what is basically an assisted living setup where resources are thrown at them from a point of view of trying to rectify that situation. We do need to look at, you know, stuff like that, because the reality is... with I'm not saying the council are right. The council, see if the council evicts somebody. They are still on the hook for housing them. That is the reality. That is the situation that they have to deal with. But I am in complete agreement with you that communities are being failed, that you can have one or two families that enter a particular street that can completely change the nature of the street, that could create a whole pile of hassle. Criminality needs to be dealt by the Gardaí. And we know even when the Gardaí do it, they're dealing with backlog court services, But beyond that, when we're dealing with families like this, in most cases, the criminality they engage with is absolutely detrimental to the community. But if you're talking about jail time or anything like that, it's not it's not significant enough for that to happen. So we do need to make sure that we do need to put here. I'll be honest. Mm. See, when I talk about resources in some cases, I will think on the basis that you in these families, there are many generations that are lost. But we are continuing to fail the next generation Mm. of kids that are born into this set of circumstances. I am not saying it's okay to put somebody back from a point of view that you'll be putting their neighbours in danger. I think we have to deal with the particular issues we have of these particular families that we do need to put some sort of resources in them from a point of view of mitigation, from harm reduction, and we need to protect those that are severely under pressure. I have absolutely no difficulty in relation to that. This mm-hmm. is very difficult to talk about in the basis that yes. you can't mm-hmm. get it into specifics. Exactly. And I'll be honest, I'm having, and I've had, and I am absolutely fed up, having multiple conversations of looking for solutions. And I know sometimes if we were to highlight this on the basis of names, if we talk about, let's say, moving a person's, the danger will be where you're going to move them to because you need to move them nearly to a place where they can't cause a huge amount of of, of issues because there's no point putting logic around some of these cases. You could be dealing with people, multi-generational trauma, you could be dealing with addiction, you could be dealing with a huge amount of issues. So if people are expecting that you're suddenly going to get a turnaround in relation to behaviour. That's not going to happen unless we make a major intervention. But the real intervention has to be at a far earlier stage. See, for some of these cases, it's a back-to-the-future car you need and a huge multi-agency response. But you're 100% right that... Communities are being absolutely failed. We need, we need a government response. Local authorities don't have the power in relation to estate management, and some of that will be that you okay. will at times. I have to cut
0: across and I'm, you
8: will have I'm, to put supports around.
0: I'm people. way over time, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Murkú,
7: Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM.
0: Let me bring you some of uh, the comments. A great variety of uh, comments have uh, come to us uh, this morning. Thanks to everybody who's taken uh, the time to phone, text, WhatsApp, uh, get in touch through social media or email, as uh, the case may be. And Grania was on the phone to us uh, she was in touch with us, like a lot of people uh, for that matter, about uh, the cost of energy. She says, what option is there for people who can't afford to retrofit our homes? Are we just going to have to pay out these higher prices my house is heated by oil i'm worried sick about next winter Uh, i'm wondering should i buy electric heaters but will electricity be any cheaper we need advice on what to do as there are lots of people like me who do not have the extra cash to pay for retrofitting i feel sorry especially for older people in older houses and there needs to be a plan in place to provide supports Thanks, uh, Grania, for that. As I I say, uh, I think that probably reflects the thoughts of a number of people who were in touch with us today. Jimmy is in Drogheda, and he was on the phone too, and he says that Minister Thomas Byrne needs to be asked about the rip-off at the petrol stations. How come there's a price difference from station to station? It seems they can charge what they want. What does the Taoiseach mean when he says prices will increase, but he doesn't know by how much we need to know? Uh, I think uh, he means you'd need a crystal ball, uh, but just take it for granted that they are going to uh, increase uh, and uh, it's not going to be easy. Hard times ahead, it seems. Uh, John in touch with us as well. John was on the phone as well. and He says people should buy a second duvet. Let's face the facts. Oil won't be available. And even if it is, no one will be able to afford it, John says. God, that's very cynical. Uh, Thank you, uh, John. A a different John then, uh, who is in Drogheda, and he says his daughter's house was petrol-bombed six months ago. Uh, And John tells us the Gardaí took CCTV camera away, but they still don't have any clear answers and they're waiting for information as to what is happening in relation to the attack. Very, very difficult situation and one that none of us envy, I'm sure. Thank you indeed uh, for the call. Uh, Somebody else texting us then, a number of Uh, text, first one saying Michael how come Ireland is always the dearest with everything, oil hotels, food Uh, and even when you compare prices here to the north we are always the most expensive I don't know, I'm not sure that that's true but uh uh, we'll all be looking for pay increases. <laughs> maybe that's part of it, I don't know, but we will be looking for pay increases and maybe we're uh, in this ever never-ending cycle. Uh, Paddy Duffy says, the peasants are revolting. Now, that statement can have two meanings, but the one I'm referring to is the one where uh, in the next election, all political parties will be decimated. We've had enough of the old ways that only serve the chosen few. And he says he, he wants to make a prediction now that Fine Gael will, because of their right-wing views, insist that any help given to us with these energy costs and so on, will have to be universal and not direct it at those who need it most. Undoubtedly, they will say it is impossible uh, to direct it to those who need it, but he says we have a welfare system, we have old-age pension recipients and so on. It's not beyond revenue's capacity to come up with an answer. They have more information on the whole population than any other agency. and He says he's willing to put €5 on it with me uh, if uh, I'm willing to take uh, those odds. Uh, you're all right, Patty. Uh, somebody else, James Androhada says, as I warned months ago about the common recession and racing inflation, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Uh, Another text from somebody who says, Michael, people can't afford to pay for retrofitting their homes. They're struggling to survive, even those working. Thomas Byrne uh, is talking the talk, but we need answers uh, to these problems. It all sounds good, but to no use. Uh, uh, It is no use to people who can't afford it. Uh, That's from a Navin listener. Thank you for your text to the programme as well. We've uh, somebody else uh, then who is WhatsApping us, uh, who says, Michael, they keep telling us to stop using coal and turf, but they don't give us any alternatives to get the wraparound in my house, which would cost 22,000. That's Alan, who's uh, sent that WhatsApp. Uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from Bob Bubbs in Droghede says, just a quick comment on the show yesterday. If the DAA is saying that one of the problems... In staffing, the airport is of vetting for security. Why don't they give the jobs to the teachers uh, who will be on their holidays? They're always complaining that they're not paid enough and they're all of vetted. Surely they'd be delighted uh, with the view, says Bob. Thanks uh, for that, Bob. There's a, a lot of thoughts on Dublin Airport.
5: Families are missing out on holidays because of long delays in issuing passports. Hotels now charge between 350 and €400 Euros for one night. And now the state's main airport experiences chaos. Dublin Airport on Sunday was a nightmare for those caught up in the mayhem. People waited hours in queues that stretched outside the terminal buildings. Passengers received no communications, no updates or explanations for the delays Indeed, many hadn't even made it to the security check before their flights took off without them. More than 1,000 people missed their flights. So big money had to be forked out for hotel rooms, connecting flights were missed, and would be holiday makers had their holidays ruined. And now, confusion surrounding what any compensation package will cover sows further frustration. Minister, This isn't only about tourism and holidays. As you know, as a small island nation, we rely heavily on our airports to ensure our connectivity with the rest of the world, and we simply cannot afford this chaos. Last week's events at the airport risk damaging Ireland's international reputation for international business and investment.
0: Thanks. Mary Lou MacDonald speaking in the Dáil yesterday when the Sinn Féin leader wanted to know what is the government going to do about it?
5: So, of course, the Dublin Airport Authority must be held responsible for its part in this mess. But let's be very clear. When the operation of the most important airport in the state breaks down, it is the business of government to get ahead of that. Minister the Public is in disbelief at this fiasco and those now planning to travel through Dublin Airport this bank holiday weekend are now very, very worried. So my question to you is this, can you today guarantee that we are not facing more chaos at Dublin Airport this weekend?
0: The Labour Party leader, Ivana Backage, also raised many questions about Dublin Airport with the government yesterday.
1: We know a 1,000 people have missed their flights. We know people missed out on job opportunities, on work-related travel, on funerals, on weddings, on holidays, and so much more. And clearly this is a huge issue of consumer rights. It's a huge issue for those passengers who were so seriously inconvenienced over the weekend, Minister. But it's not just a matter of poor planning by the DAA, although that's clearly a serious issue in itself. It also points to two broader issues for which government must take responsibility, and that is a failure of our national aviation policy, a failure to ensure effective distribution of flights among our airports, because it's not just about Dublin Airport, we're conscious that many people are now looking to other airports, looking at Cork Airport, looking at Farron 4 Airport and looking at airports where there is capacity and seeing the contrast between the chaos we saw at the weekend with Dublin Airport. So it's about a national aviation policy that must take into account distribution of workload among our regional airports too. And it's also at a broader level, Minister, about workers' rights. And that's something that our, 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 our transport spokesperson and Duncan Smith has been raising consistently now for some time we've seen the Dublin Airport Authority lay off staff during COVID we saw significant numbers laid off and we saw government failing to put in a no redundancy clause as a condition of the, of the state supports that were being granted and we know the DAA took advantage of those state supports, supports like the EWSS which is coming to an end today and yet there was no conditionality around workers' rights in that. We heard this morning Minister, from an anonymous worker at Dublin Airport about the serious issues around workplace conditions and around pay that pertain for the many, many staff at Dublin Airport.
0: The Labour leader also wants to know what is the government going to do about it?
1: Can you assure passengers, first of all, that we won't see the same chaotic scenes at the airport this weekend? But can you also assure the House that there will be a proper and effective national aviation strategy put in place to ensure that this this imbalance between one airport and the other airports doesn't occur again?
0: Ivana Backage there. We'll continue this conversation with a member of the Transport Committee in a moment.
7: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
0: on, on LMFM. Well, there's going to be a, a very interesting meeting in uh, the Oireachtas uh, today when uh, the Transport Committee will hear from Dalton Phillips, who's uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Dublin Airport Authority. Let's speak to Senator Timmy Dooley of Fianna Fáil, a member of uh, that committee. And uh, a very good morning to you, Timmy. Thanks, uh, as always, for joining us on the programme. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of uh, excuses and uh, a lot of uh, apologies today. Uh, What else will you be hoping to hear?
4: Well, I think we've heard enough of apologies um, because no apology is going to resolve the issues that people have suffered, particularly last Sunday. Missed flights, significant costs, um, disappointment all over the place for a lot of people. Look, from a a strategic point of view, from, from the committee's perspective, I think what we want to hear is, in the first instance, tell us what happened, tell us why it happened, and then tell us how you're going to resolve that. Uh, We don't want any soft chat. We don't want any sort of uh, empathy uh, conversations. Have that with the customers through your communications channels. We want the hard information. We want to know how uh, we arrived at this situation uh, and how the Dublin Airport Authority are going to ensure that it doesn't happen again.
0: Well, I've heard a spokesperson for the DAA say in the last couple of days that that's not something that they can guarantee.
4: Look, I, I mean, I accept and we will always accept that situations will arise from time to time. But any company worth its salt has contingency measures in place. They do a risk profile of their activities. They look at demand management and they put in place a contingency. And I want to know, as I think everybody on the committee will, that they will make every effort possible to to minimise or limit uh, the extent to which passengers are inconvenienced. And that does require putting in place Various different at uh, various different stages of a response. I don't get the impression, I really don't get the impression that they had had um, a strategic plan in place. And here's why I don't think so. There were people arriving at the airport because of the, the panic that ensued and the media reports that there were queues. People arrived six, seven, eight hours in advance of they requiring to be there because they just wanted to play safe. So you lump them in with people who are there three hours in advance. Um, and you create much bigger queues than were actually necessary. But yet the people who weren't travelling for seven or eight hours were still allowed to join the queue, uh, effectively um, making it more difficult for the people whose flights were earlier. So there needs to be segregation at the point of arrival at the airport. That doesn't seem to have been put in place, and I saw one of the communications people being questioned about that, and he sort of battered it off as if, well, we couldn't do that. Of course you can do that we need to see segregation for people who are, who have already booked in online, who have hand baggage and can go direct to security, rather than putting them in the same line as people who have yet to drop off bags. So it requires uh, an appropriate response. We need to see, you know, um, an engineered solution uh, that manages all the different streams of activity that takes place at the airport. That clearly wasn't in place last weekend, I'm shocked that it wasn't when you mm-hmm. consider that this issue first arose back in late February, early March, um, and it seems to have been uh, a let's suck it and see and see how we get on.
0: Well, one That's of the problems cool. they, 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 they've been explaining is absenteeism, uh, and that uh, 17 people weren't in work that were rostered to work. Uh, but uh, the CIPTU uh, Aviation Uh, sector organiser Jerry Brennan was saying that there were names on the roster that shouldn't have been on the roster because there were people who were rostered to work that weren't qualified to do the job they were still in training and they actually weren't expected to be in work but somehow their names ended up on the roster and maybe that led to 17 people being absent there's a serious managerial problem there if what Jerry Brennan said is correct
4: I always take the view that management are responsible, um, and they, and 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 if somebody doesn't show up for work because they're sick or they've decided not to come in for the day, that's fine. There's disciplinary issues that get dealt with if somebody is ha- hasn't performed a duty, but management are responsible. Management need to have contingencies in place, like.
0: But if, man, if they're if they're like, rostering people who aren't going so to that's come in into work,
4: that's, that's the point. But I mean, that's a that's an I.R. issue that should be dealt with. Separately, if if if, you, if if somebody is suggesting that management are presenting this as some kind of an excuse for the screw up, that 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 that's not relevant.
0: Well, that their their rosters are wrong. There's names on the correct. roster that shouldn't be on the roster.
4: Well, but that's a function of management, um, and 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 that may be at the core of the issue. It may be that some people didn't show up. That may be part of the problem.
0: Well, if it is but correct, well, it's up. probably a mixture of both. But if it is correct, uh, I mean, it's amateur hour, isn't it?
4: The point is that it is completely an amateur show if, if something like that happens. Because, I mean, any company would expect, if you're processing 50,000 passengers a day um, and you have a large volume of employees, of course there are people going to be sick. Of course mistakes get made back along the line. But you always should have a contingency to cater for certain people falling ill or being unable to be at work. Mm. And you have backup plans. And if there was a mistake in the roster, there should have been a backup plan to address that rather than seeing people queuing for hours and missing flights. Mm. So it, it says to me that, you know, what, what, what may ultimately have been a relatively minor set of circumstances led to such chaos, that's a function of management. It's okay. not the workers' fault uh, and, at the end of the day, because there uh, should be parallel streams.
0: And you can't expect workers to work if they're not going to be paid for their work uh, apparently, there's some problem after a cyber attack on uh, the payroll system, uh, but people haven't been paid or haven't been paid properly for months.
4: Yeah, there are, there's always issues like that, but they should be. I mean, they should be identified early on in any kind of a proper management structure that's based on analysing potential risk. And these are all things that would would show up in any risk profile. And you put in place a contingency plan to address these issues. You should have that plan in the drawer, ready to pull out when any one of these issues arise. Mm. The difficulty, in, from my humble opinion, with Dublin Airport is that it has been seen as a glorified shopping mall uh, for far too long. The difficulty with Dublin Airport is, it, the customers of Dublin Airport at the end of the day are the airlines. And I think Dublin Airport have been treating their airlines rather shabbily. And they're doing so because there's no effective competition to Dublin Airport. Airlines know that they have to be at Dublin Airport because that's where the volume of traffic is. And unfortunately, the net result of it is that passengers get a relatively raw deal in terms of the way they're treated as they go through the airport. And that's the fault of DAA management who are more interested. Every time I go through that airport, I see work being done on the shopping mall a new concession coming in a new shop more construction work i have seen no changes no improvement or no upgrade to the security lines the technology that's used at dublin airport is uh, well out of date even shannon airport a small airport in the west of ireland has better equipment which allows for a uh, quicker passage through the liquids that we all have to show since 9-11 that you've got to remove from your bag and place in a special tray and get analysed as it passed through. In Shannon now, you can leave them in the bag and it goes through. That has a huge impact in terms of the speed at which uh, somebody gets processed at the security line. Dublin doesn't have that technology. Other airports around the world mm. uh, have it and are putting it in. Even the, the baskets that they use and the way they come back uh, to, the, to, the, to the back end of the line again is slow and antiquated. It's not fit for purpose for an airport with uh, the potential for upwards of 30 million passengers going through it uh, on an annual basis. It's letting Ireland down, it's sending out a poor image of the country um, and it really is something that needs to be addressed.
0: Okay. If Dalton Phillips, the CEO, tells you and the members of the committee today that they can't guarantee that last weekend' scenes will be repeated, last weekend's experience... Uh, nightmare experience for so many people uh, that that won't be repeated. They can't guarantee that. Will you be telling them that they need to guarantee it somehow by bringing in the army or, or re uh, hiring uh, the 300 security guards that they let go when they let a thousand well, people go?
4: The, the first thing I want to know is I mean, guarantees are always dangerous things to offer or, or to request, but what I'll want to know is a little bit more detail why you cannot ensure that passengers have a timely process through the airport and what additional uh, analysis have you done? What additional redundancy measures have you put in place and right up to and including the support of the army. Now I, I know that has been bandied around and the army may have a role, may potentially have a role in crowd control, crowd management, logistics, etc. But at the end of the day, um, it's about how you, how you traffic people through the airport and have you made every hmm. possible effort to get as many people as possible that are trained to process... And we're uh, we're,
0: we're hearing uh, already... Let w- go, for sure. Well, we are hearing that part of the plan I said already, but it is, of course, a, a delayed uh, plan in being a, a announced. But that there will be different cues depending uh, on whether you have bags or don't have bags and you need to go straight to security or what it is and that sort of thing. And that does sounds like, sound like a sensible approach. Well, given my God,
4: isn't it, isn't it a shocking indictment of management that at this Eleventh mm. hour. Sorry, the thirteenth hour. Actually, because mm. we're going past the crisis point yep. of last Sunday. Uh, but that but that 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 idea uh, dawned on on senior management. Um, that would be more important to me now than seeing Dalton Phillips and a couple of his senior staff uh, running around the floor saying that they're putting their shoulder to the wheel. I'd like them to put their their engage their brain uh, and engage with people who understand crowd control, crowd management. Uh, and internal uh, logistics within airports to put plans in place, but that doesn't seem to have happened. Look, if 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 if, if that's now part of the plan, great, it's a step forward. And then what else are they ready to deploy uh, depending on the surges that take place? And I think one of the biggest things will have to be to ensure that you don't crowd the airport with people who, quite frankly, don't need to be there. I had to go through Dublin Airport on Monday out and back the same day I met people uh, at 3.30 in the morning, or 3 o'clock actually, who were having a flight at 2 o'clock that day, but they just felt they needed to be there uh, to ensure that they'd get their flight because of what happened the day before. Now, in my view, those people should not have been allowed into the terminal, should not have been allowed past some outer cordon uh, until such time as, you know, it had reached a certain stage so that you just don't have that chaos within the airport. And mm-hmm. that's the kind of thinking now that's needed. Um to 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 manage the surge that's expected at the weekend
0: uh, a past employee Uh, is uh, in touch on WhatsApp saying the DAA were greedy and wanted to save money. They let too many staff go, uh, made people redundant as we know. A thousand people were made redundant. Uh, Old uh, DAA contract uh, had uh, people on big money and they wanted to get rid of them for that reason uh, not because of of COVID. Uh, They let too many people go and now it's biting them uh, where it hurts. This is why they're so short staffed. Also our caller says when it comes to security anyone that came more than four hours before their flights uh, were instructed uh, not uh, to uh, go through security uh, as they were too early and to come back later on. Uh, Everyone is panicking and uh, everyone is showing up now hours upon hours before their flights and this is also causing chaos. Uh, There's probably some merit in that comment, uh, I imagine, Timmy.
4: Everything that's in that is true. I've I've, I've reflected this in the past that for sure the DAA were trying to do a, a... Uh, A back-end financial management uh, plan during the the, the COVID crisis and they let expensive people go in the hope that they'd get cheaper ones at a later stage, it has backfired. And I think whatever covenants they'd had in place with those people uh, that disallowed them from hiring them again, that should be cast aside now for this summer. Um, Those people should be rehired at whatever it costs to get them back because they have the know-how, the knowledge, and and if there is a bonanza for those staffing it, the best. to look to them. Mm. The, the, the the airport needs it. The country needs it. Yeah, the public, public needs it. Uh, so and the
0: DAA, I suppose, needs in. to accept that you reap what you sow.
4: Correct. And um, and for sure, I think that 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 texter has identified the issue that I that I reflected at the at the outset. Uh, that when 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 uh, information gets out there that there's a crisis, it does create panic, and that's how uh, the old the old principle of the stampede. If everybody stopped, it would be fine. But but in a a panic situation, people just, you know, run like a herd in the same direction. And that does create uh, the domino effect. And sadly, that's that's what's facing us at the weekend. And we, we now need to see a cordon approach to access to the airport so that at least the critical piece of infrastructure, that which is effectively the gate, uh, where people go through for security, that the pressure doesn't come on there, that, you know, there's uh, some some outer cordon uh, mm-hmm. at the airport that prevents people being in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, there'll be much more, obviously, this afternoon uh, when you meet with the, D- the DAA, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley is uh, a member of uh, the Eroctus Transport Committee.
7: Michael Reid on LMFM. On LMFM.
0: Uh, As uh, we've been discussing, uh, the current rate of inflation is at 8.2%. Uh, The Taoiseach told us yesterday that the government has to be honest and we can expect higher energy prices for some time to come and that will have a a knock-on impact on already soaring prices and the pressure that this is putting people under. Let's speak to Izzy Petri, who's uh, the Research and Policy Officer with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you, Izzy, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure you're seeing uh, the... Uh, pressure that people are, are coming under that we're hearing about so often in, in terms of the demand on the services that you provide at St Vincent de Paul.
9: Hi Michael um, and yeah that's right we absolutely are so we're seeing our SVP conferences are really busy um, you know last year we received over 190,000 calls for assistance in total and you know the start of this year has also been really busy and I suppose what our members are seeing and how they're supporting people is People are really struggling, Um, you know, we would be particularly concerned about um, people who just aren't able to meet all of their essential costs from week to week. Those costs, you know, as you just mentioned there, continue to go up and incomes aren't going up at all in the same way.
0: Mm-hmm.
9: So this is when people are in that really difficult position of having to choose between between essentials. So uh, having to choose to pay their rent or to keep their heating on. Um, and then the outcome of that might be not being able to afford to have enough food. So these, you know, these are the really impossible choices they are facing people.
0: Mm. And could it get worse? Are you concerned that it might?
9: Well you You mentioned there the high rate of inflation, and the indication seemed to be that um high energy costs are here with us um for the next while so that will definitely continue to have an impact on people um and uh what we really need to see then is more targeted measures towards people who are going to struggle the most with those high costs. We have seen you know some targeted measures um particularly through the fuel allowance, which is really, really important. And that's um, a direct way of helping people. But we need to see much more of those measures kind of in a sustainable way, in a sustained way, so people are able to budget and meet their costs through the coming months.
0: Okay, We're always told uh, it's a, a very wealthy country that we live in. And I'm sure uh, that eludes uh, uh, many people uh, who come to you looking for help in uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul but it certainly does seem to be a country of have and have not uh, reading an article by Colin Gleeson in the Irish Times today that might interest some of our listeners uh, about uh, some of the top earners in the country and how non-executive directors were earning between 60 and 70 thousand in 2017 their salary has increased to a hundred and seven thousand plus uh, a non-executive director now on nine hundred and eighty thousand Plus, uh, uh, an executive director uh, on 1,296,000. Plus, uh, the CSO suggesting yesterday that every uh, average weekly earnings uh, in the country are at over 880 euro, uh, which would be people on 45,000 euro a, a year, uh, and perhaps. Uh, it's people who are on salaries of, of that level that don't understand uh, the choices that you highlight uh, which are to choose to eat or heat or if you are going to eat that maybe you're having beans or cornflakes for your dinner.
9: Yeah, absolutely. So what we, what we know about um, the social welfare system is that it's this essential public service Um, But currently, um, the the rates of those core social welfare payments simply don't add up to allow people to meet all of their essentials in many cases. And so people do have to make uh, the choices about um, having enough food, about compromising on the quality of that food to make way for those utility bills and those essential rent payments. Mm. So that's that's simply... um, You know, a fact of the rates that are set in the social welfare system, but those. Those rates, um, you know, can be changed. You know that is that is a government policy decision at what what level to set those those rates at. And SBP continue to call for and you know have have been calling for a benchmarking system where we use research that is updated every year by the Pension Partnership for Social Justice mm. that says we can set our social welfare rates at a level that we know meets the essential costs of living in Ireland today. And that is the decision that we
0: can make through the social welfare system. Uh, and take it, uh, it's not just people in social welfare, we have the working poor, and probably more people will fall into that category uh, if energy prices continue to increase in particular and mortgage uh, repayments uh, come uh, the autumn uh, for that matter uh, as the money they earn goes uh, far uh, less uh, in terms of uh, its value. Uh, but when you hear salaries on that scale, can you understand decisions uh, to give people who are uh, extremely high earners 200 off uh, their electricity and that sort of thing or, or could that money be targeted better towards uh, the people that you're talking about who are finding it impossible to eat or heat?
9: Yeah, well, we definitely would like to see much more targeting. So, the- You know, at SVP, our members would see that that 200 um, euro that went to everyone for some people, um, that was really a lifeline and that was really essential. So kind of in the coming decisions that the government make, we would really like to see um, targeting towards people on low incomes and in the situations where they're at highest risk of having to make these impossible choices between essentials. So there was was that that universal payment, uh, but then there was also additional... um, targeted funding through the fuel allowance so we would like to see more of that targeted funding and also through things like the exceptional needs payment scheme which uh, provide a really important kind of safety net for people who have a once-off kind of unexpected cost and they can uh, try and access that, that payment through the social welfare system.
0: Okay, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Izzy Petri, Research and Policy Officer with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul.
7: Michael Michael Reed
0: Reed on LMFM. Independent TD for Johnny Thomas Pringle raised the Brandon report in the Dáil yesterday and how HSE managed to fail the vulnerable residents of Ardgrania Court. They also failed the man identified as Brandon and frontline staff as well, he said. He was doing so Uh, in uh, the light of uh, the publication of a Safeguarding Ireland discussion paper on Safeguarding Vulnerable Adults. It it was commissioned by Safeguarding Ireland uh, and uh, the report was done by Dr Michael Brown. It's called Identifying Risks, Sharing Responsibilities, the Case for a Comprehensive Approach to Safeguarding Vulnerable Adults. Uh, Let's uh, talk to Patricia Ricard-Clark who's the Chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland and uh, A very good morning to you, Patricia, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. And uh, I suppose uh, the case of Brandon in Donegal uh, is an extreme example of where vulnerable people were let down. Uh, But there's many issues that you have and many concerns that you have. And in order to address that, you're suggesting that there should be a safeguarding authority established. Indeed.
3: Good morning, Michael. and just to say, we were established back in uh, December 2015, post the out situation um, and the HSE publication of their adult abuse policy then in 2014. Uh, we are an independent body. And since then, we've been looking at issues and doing very many surveys uh, on issues around adult safeguarding. First of all, to say, and I'll come to the Safeguarding Authority, first of all, to say, we have no adult safeguarding uh, legislation in this jurisdiction with uh, that huge deficit, uh, we have, say, a HSE policy, uh, policy, as I've mentioned, uh, but it's quite limited. Um, so, what we're saying is that uh, there's a very significant lack of scope and integration in Ireland uh, in relation to responses to safeguarding or indeed to prevent uh, abuse or exploitation or neglect of vulnerable people. So, um, we have uh, the HSC Safeguarding Service, of have Mental Health all focused on the health and social care area but of course the needs safeguarding needs really are across all areas and this is one of our issues uh that we're trying to get legislation that will include financial housing homelessness justice and all of that mm. random is one incident that happened and as you say it's an extreme incident but there are many many more um, so our report, uh, you know, given all our surveys over the period of time, lack of, uh, say, data collection, we've no national data collection base, no body responsible for collecting data. We did a survey which indicated that almost 40% of people didn't know who to report Um adult abuse too, Uh, so that's another issue and yet a recent survey we did in 2020 indicated that one third of people indicated they had been abused in their lifetime and yet we have no legal framework to deal with any of that. So what that means is that uh, it weakens any effective action at implementation level because people don't know who to report to, don't know what to do. Mm. They have no really legal framework in place as to what procedures they must follow Uh, at what standards, we've no standards. So, first of all, we're looking for a legal framework in terms of a piece of legislation. The court, that piece of legislation, uh, we're uh, suggesting the establishment of an independent uh, national adult safeguarding authority, independent of all services, all organisations, and would have responsibility for promoting standards, overall reporting, data collection, but also data sharing, We have data uh, protection legislation in 2018, but we've no regulations published under that to enable us to share data Mm. where it's necessary, appropriate, proportionate to protect uh, a person who is at risk. Uh, And I mean, that can be done very quickly now. Uh, We also need, obviously, that independent authority to investigate abuse allegations independently, objectively, transparently we need the enforcement then of adult safeguarding legislation. And at the moment, while we have, say, crimes of theft and that, we don't consider pilfering the pension or the benefit from a person with intellectual disability or the pension from an old person as abuse. So, in other words, we are dismissive of certain forms of abuse or, abuse or we trivialise them. Mm. And again, in terms of, say... Uh, We've uh, domestic violence legislation we've had conviction of coercive control but again as our paper points out that legislation is limited to people who are or have been in an intimate relationship yet the highest level of psychological abuse and coercive control is amongst older people and we don't see that as abuse so in other words somebody else is controlling them and particularly those people who are old frail or may lack capacity to make decisions or need support to make their decisions, we don't respect their rights, we don't support them, we take over, we control mm. and whatever. So talk t- t- talk to me
0: about decision making uh, because uh, some people will voluntarily take treatment, others uh, will be given treatment uh, and perhaps uh, against their will and you want uh, decision making uh, I think uh, to be something that would be addressed by the government at the moment we've uh, legislation going back to 2001, there was the criminal Law and Sanity Act of 2006 then the Mental Health Act of 2001 uh, and now there's uh, uh, legislation in the pipeline since 2015, the Assisted yes. Decision Making Capacity Act, act. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So, so there's a distinction say between mental health so at the moment a person who if the definition is a mental disorder, serious mental illness can be involuntarily detained and can be treated without their consent. That has been a huge issue And there's an amendment act, mental health amendment act, going through at the moment, uh, and that's one of the issues. It that that uh, denial of consent and uh, detention would be against the UN um, Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So that is a, a very live issue that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, then. We have, and uh, we still have in place, 1871 legislation around decision-making capacity, mm. and we enacted legislation, uh, the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act in 2015. It's due to commence now, June, July, we have an amendment bill just published on Monday uh, dealing with some technical amendments but also some uh, not in the bill, and this is another bone of contention, another huge gap, deprivation of liberty. So in other words, a person can be put into a nursing home against their will and without their consent. So we've all of those huge gaps
0: Mm. and, you know... And that may be for their own good and for the uh, welfare of others Uh, and uh, I mentioned Thomas Pringle earlier on, he was raising your report uh, in the doll yesterday it was Minister Michael McGrath who responded to him uh, and uh, in terms of refusing treatment he, he said he wasn't uh, addressing your report specifically because he hadn't seen it but in terms of refusing treatment he, he did say that there's advice from the Attorney-General's office that if people refuse treatment that they may no longer uh, have to be detained uh, there may not be a basis for detaining them and that could have problems of its own.
3: Uh, yes, and we need, that, that uh, again, But that's highlighting the gaps in our legislation. So if a person is going to be a serious risk either to themselves or to another person, we need a legal framework and procedures to deal with that. We've glossed over all of these things and we've tended, one, to either take people into wardship or use the Mental Health Act to detain them. We need to actually address the whole issue of when and how and why a person can be detained without their consent. Uh, and we don't have that clear legal framework at the moment. Apart from, again, uh, we, we tend to make decisions on behalf of a person who actually, with a bit of support, uh, and this is what the 2015 mm. Act is about to commence, uh, is going to have support frameworks. So a person can have a person assisting them, decision-making assistant or co-decision maker, or then if they haven't put in place a uh, planned in advance an advanced healthcare directive or uh, an EPA um then it's a court application. But again it's about respecting the rights of the person, getting their consent and it's only in the very last resort if you can't get their consent or they won't Mm -hmm. consent and there are risks to themselves Mm -hmm. or other people then we need a proper legal framework to deal with that.
0: Okay, we have to leave it there because we've run out of time but thank you for your time and thank you for joining us as always. That's Patricia Ricard-Clark, Chairperson of Safeguarding Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye.
5: The Michael Reed Show Podcast.
4: Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie.